Hello, 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 and welcome back to another episode of Opinion or Opportunity. I am your host, Don Gringo. So today we got a very special topic and a very special guest. So we're covering COVID. We're going to talk about the real deal about COVID, and we're going to talk to Dr. Scott Jensen, a actually state senator out of Minnesota, who has been hit for his beliefs. They actually tried to take his medical license for his beliefs. We're going to talk about everything that's real, numbers, facts, and of course, dollar amounts. And more importantly, follow up to the end because we're even going to talk about vaccines. So are you ready? Here we go. Let's get started. All right, Dr. Jensen, so the first question I want to discuss with you is some people believe that COVID is actually a myth. It's a hoax by the government or whoever else has it. Now, I personally, when I first talked to you, told you I know three people who have got it. One was a first responder EMT. He was a cousin of my wife. And then he obviously in turn gave it to his uh, mother and father, who are my wife's cousins. Uh, no, aunt and uncle, excuse me. Um, so my question is this. I've never known anyone personally who has passed away from it. But what is the actual real deal about COVID itself? Well, COVID-19 is a real virus. It's a, it's a novel virus. And I think it's probably the sixth or seventh one that is, if you will, found its way into the human race in such a way that we are able to identify it. I had COVID-19 myself about two months ago. And for me, I was very fortunate. I thought that uh, I was experiencing the beginning of the ragweed allergy season and I had some stuffy nose and sneezing and coughing and fatigue for a few days. And I put myself on my routine allergy medicines. And a few days later, I, I was dramatically better. And I remember commenting to my wife, wow, that was a pretty mild allergy season. I imagine we must have just had sort of a dose because of the wind and the dry weather. And I said, I thought it would be back. But then when I ran into a friend a month later who told me that he had had it about five weeks earlier and I had been with him, I said, I didn't know that. And since it was five weeks since I'd been exposed to him, I went ahead and had my antibodies checked, which I've been doing about every two months. And my with that, antibodies- with, with that being said, um, what is the incubation period for COVID-19? Well, the incubation period regarding symptoms is generally two to 14 days. But in terms of the development of antibodies, typically from the time you're infected, uh, it typically takes seven to 10 days for IgM antibodies, which are the first antibodies to develop. And then it takes somewhere around three to four weeks for the IgG antibodies, which is the more mature antibody. And then there's another kind of antibody, IgA, which is oftentimes referred to as a neutralizing antibody. And the time sequencing with that antibody is not as clear cut. So when we do COVID-19 serology testing, which means serology is blood, we're generally looking for the IgG antibodies. Okay. So with, with the death rate, um, and when we talk about COVID now, um, you had some very controversial statements months and months and months ago that you were saying that states are incentivized or hospitals are incentivized. A lot of, a lot of places are incentivized to claim COVID uh, deaths. And why is that? Well, in terms of the death certificates, there's no monetary reward that I'm aware of regarding utilizing COVID-19 as the cause of death. What I complained about in regards to death certificates was the advice coming from the Minnesota Department of Health and its linkages to the CDC, where 
we were encouraged to use COVID-19 as a cause of death, even if we believed it to be a contributing condition rather than the cause. When we do death certificates, there's part one and part two. Part one is the critical part. In that, we're supposed to identify the chain of events that led to the death. And we're supposed to begin with the, if you will, underlying cause of death, which initiated that entire sequence of events. Generally, we're also asked to put in part two any thoughts that we have regarding contributing conditions. And oftentimes that might be type two diabetes, it might be congestive heart failure. But the bottom line is contributing conditions are routinely by the CDC and the Department of Health and the national vital agencies, we're supposed to put those in part two, contributing conditions. The Department of Health came out and said, no, go ahead and put them down as a cause of death. And that was why the Illinois Department of Health had that famous interview where the the speaker said, well, just because it says on the death certificate that they died from COVID-19 doesn't mean that they died from COVID-19. And that had millions and millions of views. And the reason was because th there was a tremendous amount of confusion being entered into the process. I complained because I'd never seen this in my 35 years of doing death certificates. We've never been coached or, if you will, massaged into using something as a cause of death. So I raised that up as an issue during but, the but course of those conversations, but during the course of those conversations. But doesn't the states or the hospitals get extra aid money from the federal government for COVID cases? I was just going to get to that. Okay. The death certificate does not have anything to do with payment. It's the discharge summaries on a hospital discharge, whether it's a discharge because the patient's discharged to home or to a nursing home or because they expired. But the discharge summary, if that has COVID-19, then there's definitely for Medicare patients an increase in the payments. And that was what I had said. If you have a routine pneumonia, typically a hospital will get paid a bundled payment for a Medicare patient of around $5,000, regardless of whether that patient was in the hospital two days or five days. If COVID-19 is the diagnosis, then that $5,000 payment will, be, will go to $13,000 approximately. And this information comes from Medicare and from hospital administrators. And it was fact-checked by the USA Today and found to be true. And then if you, during the course of the hospitalization with COVID-19, if you utilize a ventilator, then the reimbursement package goes to 39,000 approximately. Wow. Well, you know, there's a lot going on when it comes to, you know, a lot of people speculating what's going to happen, um, you know, with COVID. And, you know, there's a lot of confusion. So what are, you mentioned underlining conditions on part two of the death certificate. So, there's a lot of information out there. Let's dispel with the misinformation. What is actually the priority, say, um, secondary issues that you would find um, a problematic for someone to possibly get COVID? You no, know, obviously everyone's saying heart-like lung conditions, but what? What are we talking? Well, first off, I think we need to be very precise in our language. You said underlying conditions in part two. It's contributing conditions. Okay. Underlying condition, the underlying cause of death oh, is... Lost your video. There you go. You back again? <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. The underlying cause of death is in part one. 
So what you're asking about is the contributing conditions on a death certificate. Those could be anything that might weaken the patient such that death might come more easily. So it could be congestive heart failure. It could be leukemia. It could be cancer. It could be uh, emphysema. But you're asking now, what are those, apart from death certificates, what are those underlying conditions that put a person at risk Correct. for having a, having a really bad time with COVID-19? And we thought the two of the big ones would be emphysema and asthma because they're already, we're talking about a respiratory illness. But the fact of the matter is many studies and hospitals have found that the biggest three are uncontrolled diabetes, morbid obesity, and uncontrolled hypertension. And those are probably the things I look most closely for when I'm treating COVID-19 patients. I just got off the phone doing telemedicine visit with two patients who just found out today that they have COVID-19. And in those two situations, uh, one had, both had hypertension, uh, one had obesity that was concerned. Neither of them had diabetes. Neither of them had substantial respiratory problems. So we're looking at obesity and hypertension in one. We're looking at hypertension in the other. Both of these patients have had symptoms for three to five days. They're not getting worse. They're getting better. This is optimistic. So let me let me touch on like one of the subjects that you brought up, which is obviously personal to me. I'm not type one uh, diabetic. I'm a type two. So I take medication. Um, my sugar fluctuates. Um, you know, I'm I'm not good, but I'm not bad, right? So. If you're taking medication, when you say uncontrolled, what is, what is, let's define uncontrolled a little bit more is if you're under doctor's care and yes, you may be a little high, but you're doing, you no know, the stuff the doctor says, I mean, you're at slightly higher risk, but you wouldn't say you're, you know, at a real high risk, correct? Basically, the most simple way that I think I could explain how physicians might regard someone as uncontrolled would be if their A1C was greater than eight. If their A1C is great is less than eight, we like less than 7.5 if we can. But if, if the A1C is less than eight, the blood pressure is reasonably controlled, and the excursions of glucose up and down don't get us into problematic ranges, whether we're over 400 or whether we're less than 60, those kinds of things, then a person would be identified as being controlled. But I think the key measurement for most physicians is, okay, what's your A1C running? Okay. That's good. That's good for people to know because, like I said, for me, I was, I was type 2 and I was reading some of the stuff that you did. It's like, well, what, what is that definition? Because most people don't hear A1C when you're checking your numbers. They usually hear, you know, are you above 100? Are you above 200? Where do you, where do you stand in the range? Um, Let's just actually clarify a little more nomenclature if we could, Chris. Sure. I think medicine has done sort of a cruddy job of actually having precise nomenclature for diabetes. When people have NIDDM, which is oftentimes an abbreviation we use in medicine, NIDDM stands for non-insulin dependent diabetes mellitus, oftentimes synonymously regarded as type 2. But the fact of the matter is many of those NIDDM or type 2 patients are on insulin. So then it becomes confusing. So then we have we have insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus, which is IDDM, or NIDDM, non-insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus. And then we get into juvenile onset and adult onset. And then we have this uh, latent or LATA uh, diabetes. So our nomenclature for diabetes is clumsy enough that patients have every right to be a little confused. 
So basically, if someone like myself, uh, whether you're type 2 or type 1, whether you're taking insulin or not, basically, you should be in touch with your doctor on a routinely basis because you're at a higher risk than anybody else because it contributes to hypertension, high blood pressure, and things of that nature, correct? Correct. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Now, the one thing I want to touch on is everyone, obviously, everyone's fighting about this uh, today um, and has been fighting about it for a long time. And I think it's, you know, one of the things that is political, like Trump caught COVID, but Trump doesn't wear a mask. So let's dispel the, the bad or the good about masks. No, does masks truly help? I don't think we can dispel the masks being good or bad because it's an, a discussion that bleeds into both science and emotion. And I don't think that we're at a point in our country and probably even in our world. I think that masks hold risk in terms of rebreathing pathogens that might come from your nose, particularly in vulnerable people, perhaps elderly people. I had a 102-year-old patient I saw yesterday, and she was wearing her mask incorrectly. I didn't care. As far as I'm concerned, my 102-year-old patient was fragile, and I, I wanted her to do whatever she needed to do so that she could breathe easily without being short of breath. I would say the same thing about a five-year-old. But having said all that, I think that it's very conceivable that theoretically a mask might reduce the amount of viral load that would be introduced to a person. But I would then ask the question, let's compare a mask to, say, mosquito netting. So you're going over to Africa on a safari, and you know that you're at risk for malaria. And you know that one of the best things you might be able to do is sleep under mosquito netting. Right. Well, the mosquito netting has to be fine enough or small enough pores to keep the mosquitoes out in order for it to be effective. And if someone came to you before you lie down for the night, and they said, oh, I got good news, bad news. The good news is I've got the mosquito netting for you. The bad news is it's not the right kind. And we're afraid that the pore size might be large enough to let some mosquitoes in. But the pore size will still for sure keep some of the mosquitoes out. How reassured would you be? And I think in the same situation, you could say if masks are keeping some of the virus out, but still letting, say, 50 percent in, are we potentially being lulled into a false sense of security? Because if we are, then that's a problem. And the other thing is to really get the benefit from masks, they should be appropriately fitted, particularly in regards to an N95 mask. But masks aren't appropriately fitted. People don't wear masks appropriately. They've got holes in the bottom down here by their chin. They've got holes up here by their eyes. They've got holes out here by the side. So we're leaking virus. And we're if we're transmitting uh, just through discussion and talking, we're going to be transmitting that way as well. So I don't think we should kid ourselves thinking that this is an all or none phenomenon. But in terms of the actual discussion of masks, I think, honestly, it is so emotional that it doesn't pay to have it anymore. Well, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about, because before I joined the Marine Corps, um, when I was uh, 13 and 14, I caught walking pneumonia five times. And then after I joined the Marine Corps, I got inoculated for everything in the world because I was traveling like a champ. Um, one of the things that I don't get sick anymore, but one of the things is I think I was exposed to so much so young that my immune system kicks in. It's like ever since I got out of the Marine Corps, even during the Marine Corps, and I've been married to my current wife for 10 years, and um, I don't get sick. If I look at her and say I feel bad, I truly feel bad. But I'm just wondering today with this virus, it ain't going to go away. Um, and are we fooling ourselves that if we don't kind of do a controlled spread that eventually this is just going to get worse because we're not exposing ourselves to the virus to build up antibodies to 
fight it off naturally like a common cold. I mean, this evolution is going to happen, whether it's you know, you know, viral or genetic. It has to happen. And the specific question you're asking, I'm I guess I'm trying to figure out. I guess I'm trying to figure out if the masks we know, for the most part, if they're not properly fitted and they're not the correct masks anyway, which most masks being sold today are not the correct masks um, that don't really stop the virus. It's more of a placebo effect. It's making me feel good that someone else has a mask and someone else feeling good that I have a mask. Right? Um, is, is I it, think that science. I think the science, Chris, still remains to be established. I think if you look at the data over the last two decades and exclude any science from 2020, which I think is important to do because data that's coming from 2020 in so many situations has been led by researchers that have an agenda, whether it's for or against masks. So if you actually go back and look at what did we think from 1995 to 2019, you will find the data to say that masks aren't as helpful as we're now being told by many people. That's why Dr. Fauci and other leaders in our thought process regarding COVID-19, we're saying in February, March, and even April that masks would do no good. But we've had this dramatic reversal. So did we all of a sudden get smarter than we were or what? But let's get back to your question about a, a sort of a, a controlled spread. I think one of the things that's been problematic for me is that at the beginning of this COVID-19, in terms of our mitigating responses, we were told that we were trying to flatten the curve so that we wouldn't overwhelm our healthcare facilities. Well, we did flatten the curve and we are not overwhelming our healthcare facilities. So did the goalposts get changed? I would say they did because it seems to me today, there's all this discussion about squashing or reducing to almost zero COVID-19. That was not part of the initial, if you will, mission the initial mission was flatten the curve so we wouldn't overwhelm our healthcare facilities. Is, so that we wouldn't be turned. But Go is ahead. that honestly realistic, doctor, to squash something that is worldwide? And, and let's face it, whatever you're doing in Minnesota, I live in Texas, and whatever the federal guidelines, I mean, let's face it, there's, there's going to be different ways people handle it differently. And then when you talk about international travel, international business, if you go back to a norm, you can't guarantee that another country has handled it better or more poorly than we did. You just don't know. So is it realistic to say that you could ever squash a virus? Well, a virus, yes, I think it is. It depends upon what kind of virus and how it's transmitted. I mean, an Ebola virus, we certainly do squash. And even polio, you know, we've gotten to the point where we've essentially eradicated it. But having said that, I think in terms of a single-stranded RNA virus, whether you're talking influenza or whether you're talking uh, coronavirus such as COVID-19, that was never part of the initial game plan. And I don't think it's realistic. I think we can certainly reduce it. But to have these attitudes emerge that, you know, we're supposed to reduce the cases. I think that people are very upset nowadays. It seems like using the phrase herd immunity is, if you will, fighting words. Well, herd immunity has been a part of the discussion since the beginning. Herd immunity is not a religion. It's not whether you believe in herd immunity or not. It just is. You don't believe in gravity or not. An apple falls down. It doesn't fall up. We don't make choices about whether or not we believe in gravity. Well, we don't make choices about whether or not we believe in herd immunity. We know it's a well-identified phenomenon that occurs. If you hit a certain threshold of disease such that the disease 
incidence is reducing. And it initially started in the world of veterinary medicine in the 1910-1915 area, where we're seeing a lot of the literature emerge. And it wasn't until really the 1920s. And then in the early 1930s, we were seeing the phenomenon of herd immunity take place with measles. And that was well before we had any kind of measles vaccine. So people are bastardizing and corrupting the phrase herd immunity to their own uses. Herd immunity is a very real thing, just as gravity is. And so the question is, if we can't squash COVID-19, then will we slowly be moving towards herd, herd immunity? And the answer would be yes. The question would be, will we ever get there? Well, that I'm, is a debatable scientific topic. Well, I know I, we both know, um, and I haven't said it yet, but we both know that you dabble in politics and I will do a proper intro mm -hmm. to give it to you. And you, you, you use that. So obviously that is being over politicized for gain. But what is the gain? I don't understand the gain of politicizing a term like herd immunity. Well, I think the end game for different people is different things. I mean, I think we've, we've certainly seen the medical profession seem to, if you will, become more politicized than it customarily would. I think that for epidemiologists, it might be a different situation. For politicians, it might be a different situation. I made, I expressed the concern many, many months ago that if we were going to start seeing federal dollars distributed based on the number of COVID-19 cases or deaths that occurred within a given geographic area, we would see politicians clamor for a greater share of the dollars. Right. And they want a bigger piece of the pie. So I, I really think the end game probably depends upon who you're talking about. And I think people are definitely utilizing COVID-19 to achieve objectives that they would not otherwise be able to achieve. Now, with that being said, I just did an interview with uh, a woman out of Massachusetts. I, I was born in Massachusetts, grew up in the Mass Rhode Island line when my parents divorced. And um, the numbers in New England are no, I want to say, greater in the sense of, of population density. So currently right now, when I last looked the other day, um, Texas has like 835,000 cases, right? But we have like 17,000 deaths. I mean, we don't have a huge I mean, no, we have more, but I think my area is like, you know, whatever it was, it was like 17,000 deaths. And when you looked at Massachusetts, where I grew up, they have 145,000 cases and 9,000 deaths. So the ratio, yeah, it was 17,000, excuse me. So the, the ratio is much, much different state to state. You know, you take someplace like Texas, which is absolutely huge, and someplace like Massachusetts, and they have more than 50%, and they only have maybe one-fifth, one-quarter of the actual caseload. Of, of cases. So is that something where we're circling back and saying it attributes to the incentivization or is that a um, policy issue you No, know, between the states and the hospitals and the doctors? I mean, why is there such a wide gap when it comes to population? Now, I, I assume, and I'm a layman, uh, I assume it's due to topography and demographics and obviously population density. But I want to hear it from you. What What is your interpretation of that? You know, what's why are we so different? Well, that's a big question. There was a lot in there, Chris. And to unpack it fully uh, would take quite a bit of time. I think one of the key things is we have to ask, what metric are we looking at? If we're going to look at deaths per 10,000 people or deaths per million people, that's one thing. If we're going to look at cases uh, per certain number of people, I think that we are early enough in the game that the impact of population density and topography 
and climate. All of these things really do have to be sorted out yet. I think one of the key things is if you look at how we treated people with COVID-19, with serious uh, critical COVID-19 in March and April, and compared to how we treat those folks today, we've learned a lot. We learned a lot from the physicians in New York City when they got hit so hard. So I think that we're learning as we go. There are questions that are more critical than others. Certainly our treatment approaches is probably one of the most critical things we can focus on. Whether or not the topography or the population density or the climate or the mean temperature is going to be a part of that, the humidity of the air, we'll get there. But I don't think we have those answers definitively. But I think the more important thing is if you look at, I think National Public Radio came out with an article yesterday that identified that if you were admitted to the hospital with COVID-19 in March or April, your risk of dying was something like 26%. And now it's been reduced to 6%. The reason being that we're able to do a better job of recognizing who is going to get ill? Are they getting ill in front of us? What are the things we should be watching that tip us off that the illness is progressing? And it might look like it's not too serious, but the fact of the matter is things are happening inside the human body that we're not picking up on. And then we're looking at what to do and what not to do. We're learning that using ventilators and simply increasing uh, the pressure uh, by which we force air into a person's lungs isn't probably going to be the magic bullet. Rather, low flow, high concentrated oxygen might be more helpful. Using anticoagulants for the micro blood clots forming, considering steroids like dexamethasone, budesonide, uh, to reduce some of the inflammatory things, and also potentially oral steroids or intravenous steroids to reduce the cytokine storms. We're learning a lot. And I think that's why you're seeing an admitted hospitalized patient having a much better chance of getting through their hospitalization and getting discharged home. Oh, no, I absolutely agree. Like I said in the beginning, I don't know anyone who's passed from it. I do know people who have who have got it. And they basically told me it was like getting a really, really, really bad flu, like the worst flu they've ever had in their life. But in the end, they come out and they've been okay. So one of the other things I want to talk, talk about as a physician is the big thing going around now is education, right? Uh, opening up schools and exposing children to it. But the original assumption in the beginning was that um, children were not going to be really susceptible to the, to the virus. Um, and now everyone's, you know, gone total opposite. I don't want to say gone total opposite, but they're, they're shifting their view. Let's say they're shifting their view, right? And um, I just, I'm not, I'm not sure how to, to treat that because, you know, everyone keeps saying that the federal government has to give us some type of policy, some type of format to, to watch. Right. And, um, I don't think the federal government should have a say in the actual, um, role of education. There may be guidelines, but I think that people who go to school in say Minnesota are a lot different than, you know, the area where I go. You know what I mean? I have what we have. Yeah. Let me cut in there, Chris, if I could. Sure. So I think that in regards to schools, I think initially the thought was that perhaps the children were spared. Well, now what we're probably seeing more of is children aren't spared. It's just that when they get COVID-19, they skate on through it without much, much ado. Then the question was, well, even if they're not showing a lot of symptoms, we're still going to have problems because the children might be super spreaders. Well, now that theory has been debunked. The fact of the matter is the case fatality rate for children for COVID-19 is 
infinitesimally small. We had a big scare about Kawasaki's disease three or four months ago. I remember I was doing news programs on that disease. Bottom line is we have got to confront the fact that having a large centralized government approach may not be the best approach that to go as local as possible, to allow individual school districts to make choices, to allow individual hospitals to, ha they have their own dials. We know that hospitals can level their load, reduce their elective procedures if they're getting close to capacity because of an increase in COVID-19 admissions. The idea that government, whether it be federal or state, should be making all of the determinations, turning all the dials, doesn't make sense. We've got some school districts in Minnesota that have just a paucity of cases. There's no reason to treat them like one of our most urbanized, densely populated metropolitan school districts. But this is what's been going on. So from my perspective, I've been very clear. I think kids need to be in school. I don't think we can adequately assess the amount of push towards young children developing autism that otherwise wouldn't young people developing significant anxiety, young people that are being abused in the home place. And the normal reporters for abuse is frequently teachers who identify, but they're not getting a chance to. And the amount of depression and the amount of suicide, these kinds of things that involve mental health in school-aged children, they don't pop up on a real nifty dashboard, but they're just as real. And the fact of the matter is, when you lose the life of a 22-year-old to suicide, you're not losing a year or two or a few months of potentially compromised quality of life, which frequently happens with the largely vulnerable group. You're looking at 50 to 60 to 70 years of very productive life, the prime of life, where people are building relationships, meeting a significant other, having children, contributing to the economy, making the world a better place, and then preparing for their end weeks, months, or years. So I think that we're not having the honest discussions that we need to have. And when people tell me all they want to focus on is a death count, I want to say, well, let's look at who's dying. A death does feel tragic regardless of what age, but not all deaths are equal. If no, you're losing listen, a 20-year-old patient versus an 80-year-old patient, it's a different thing. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, there's much different than someone like my father passing and then someone like me who's half his age. I mean, he's lived a full life. I mean, he's 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 done everything. He's he's accomplished pretty much a lot of the things that he's wanted to. And I get that. Not everything is equal. Um, everyone's always concerned, the children, the children, the children, but the children don't seem to be as susceptible as, you know, maybe they're more susceptible than we originally thought. But there's still, there's not that many cases, I would imagine, to worry everyone in the world. And like you're saying, I mean, this is where, uh, children go to social, learn socialization skills, um, you know, get educated. They get to be protected by someone outside of the system, uh, the, the family, the family uh, system. I mean, there's so much to be said about it. So I know you got to go. Um, I just want to maybe touch on one or two things uh, real quick is uh, what is your inclination of the recent spikes? I mean, we all knew this was going to happen. So, I mean, is this something that come flu season after it passes, we're all good? Or is this something that's going to continue on into possibly the summer? You're asking me to prognosticate. And all I would do is just report some contextual data to you. If you look at the 2009 pandemic with the swine flu, I believe that was a 19-month pandemic. If you look at 1918 to 1920, that was probably closer to a 24 to 30 month pandemic. I think that if you look at the Hong Kong and Asian pandemics in the 
20th century, uh, you'll see you know, similar kinds of time frames. We knew that we were going to get an increase in COVID-19 as a respiratory illness once we started going inside and things like that. But I think what we're seeing right now is a tremendously increased amount of testing. In the past, we've had public health officials say, for every documented laboratory confirmed case, we have maybe 10 or 50 or 85 cases that haven't been detected. Well, we're tapping into those cases now with our increased testing. So what we're seeing, I think, makes all the sense in the world. When With increased testing, we're going to have increased cases. I think what's more important is, are we overwhelming our healthcare facilities? Are we seeing that case fatality rate increase or decrease? And if you look at the CDC data, most recently coming out saying that it looks like the case fatality rate may be somewhere around 0.25. Well, 0.25 is getting pretty close to what some of the nasty, robust influenza case fatality rates have been during human history, at least in regards to recorded medical data. So, like, I just want to point out the beginning of that, though. So the layman can understand that, you know, prior to the testing, which I've always said to everyone I've ever discussed that, listen, we're not testing people. We only know about the cases we know about. So um, basically, the, the medical the medical field in general always assumed that there was these number of cases to begin with, that this is not something new. This is not something where the politicians are trying to scare us one way or the other, that the medical field, you as a doctor, the epidemiologist, everyone already assumed because there wasn't adequate testing at the time that there was a multitude of cases and that we were going to find them as we actually started testing, correct? I agree with your point, but I think it's also important to clarify that you made some comment about people are not using this data to try to scare people. I think they are. I think even though, even though we knew we had lots of cases out there and if we started doing more testing, we would get those cases in and they would be confirmed laboratory cases. I think that we still are seeing without question a lot of fear mongering and we're using we're seeing a lot of people grab onto whatever data supports their perspective whether you're talking politicians bureaucrats epidemiologists uh media i I think that that's one of the unfortunate things about this whole process with COVID 19 is we are so divided and in part it's because everybody's gravitating towards the news that they want to gravitate toward all right well with one more thing so i know you got to go you you said 25 minutes and we're running over i do apologize doctor but the one thing I want to talk about, I said I know I won't politicize anything, but I do want to talk about something that is truly being politicized as of recently, uh, tremendously, is the talk about a possible vaccine and should we take it, should we not take it? Everyone's trying to do fear mongering around that. Um, if a vaccine comes out by a reputable drug company, um, should we take it? And, and the follow up to that would be. Under the current situation, because obviously we're not uh, following standardized FDA guidelines. The question is, and then I do have to go, is should we take the vaccine? I have a strong view on the fact that a vaccine is not like taking a shot of penicillin to kill strep throat. A vaccine is an intervention. It's a medical intervention. In the same way that we administer chemo to people with cancer, when you take a vaccine to prevent a disease, you're injecting that or introducing that into the body, hoping for a specific type of immune response. That's, if you will, a medical intervention. So to me, that requires informed consent. 
consent requires choice. So I think every person is going to have to make their own choice, and I think they should be allowed to. I think parents should choose for kids. I think that we have influenza vaccines every year, and not everybody takes them. People get to have a choice. They do their due diligence, and they make a decision. Yes, Dr. Jensen, I'll take the flu shot, or no thanks, I'll pass on that. And to me, I think that that's what we need to do with virtually any vaccine. Now, I think there might be some exceptional situations where we'd have to have further discussion. But I don't see COVID-19 as being a situation where the heavy hand of government can come into our lives and demand that we will be held down and be given a vaccine against our will. I don't think that should happen. I think we all have to make our own due diligence. We have to evaluate the safety of it, efficacy. And that's what we do. That's what Americans do. Well, I appreciate your time, doctor. Um, I know you got to get going. I will follow up with you personally after this and I will send you all the information, but I do appreciate the time. And if something comes up down the road, I would love to do this again. So I appreciate it. Thank right. you so much, sir. Thank you, Chris. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye.